Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. Only three teams played every year of the existence of the ABA, the American Basketball Association, and only two played every year in the same city, one of which was the Kentucky Colonels, perhaps the greatest or most celebrated of all the teams in a league that merged with the NBA without the Colonels. And next, on Sports Forgotten Heroes, we're going to take a look back at the one franchise the NBA was once so afraid of, they refused to play them in a winner-take-all showdown, the Kentucky Colonels. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes, a tribute to the stars who shape the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Hello and welcome to our 50th episode of Sports Forgotten Heroes. A small milestone for sure, but a thrilling one for me. It has been a fun journey so far, and I sure hope you have enjoyed a look back at the stars and teams of yesteryear that time has forgotten. And today, Gary P. West, author of the book, The Kentucky Colonels of the American Basketball Association, The Real Story of the Team Left Behind. He'll be joining the podcast as we take a look back at one of the most celebrated teams in the history of the old American Basketball Association, the Kentucky Colonels. You know, When you consider the teams that the NBA did take in when the ABA closed its doors, it's amazing to think that the Colonels were not one of them. And just one man, perhaps, prevented the Colonels from joining the NBA. And we're going to talk about that guy later with Gary. The Colonels, they had incredible talent, Hall of Fame talent. Guys like the great Dan Issel, Artis Gilmore, Louis Dampier, they all played for Kentucky, plus studs like Daryl Carrier and Bert Averitt. They also played huge roles in the Colonel's history, and their most famous coach, Hubie Brown, turned his days as coach of this team into an incredibly successful career as a coach in the NBA and as one of basketball's greatest analysts. Now, before we get to the Colonels, I wanted to let you all know that you can help support Sports Forgotten Heroes with a very small donation each month, just $1, by visiting patreon.com backslash sportsfh. This will help us offset some of the costs incurred every month to bring you this terrific content. Please check it out. That's patreon.com backslash sportsfh. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com backslash sports F-H. 
Also, don't forget, you can always stay in touch with Sports Forgotten Heroes and learn more about our guests and topics by following Sports Forgotten Heroes on Twitter at SportsFHeroes, look for the Sports Forgotten Heroes page on Facebook, or check us out online at SportsFH.com where we have links to stats, highlights, and more. Gary P. West is the author of a terrific book about the Kentucky Colonels called The Kentucky Colonels of the American Basketball Association, The Real Story of the Team Left Behind. And he also asked Lloyd Pinky Gardner to contribute. Now, Pinky, as he's affectionately known, contributed in a unique way by recapping each season by going back into his incredible collection of scorebooks, newspaper clippings, more, of which he has a record of every single game in the history of the Colonels. And he helped bring alive the most minute details of this once high-flying and proud franchise that won the ABA championship in 1975. Again, a terrific book, and I encourage everyone listening to pick up a copy. And here now to talk about the Kentucky Colonels is Gary P. West. Gary, welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. So nice of you to join us. Well, I'm glad to be here with you tonight. Hey, um, you know, the Kentucky Colonels are such an interesting topic. I mean, this was one of the true stalwarts of the old ABA, the American Basketball Association, one of the only teams to play every year of the league's existence, which, of course, will ultimately lead us, at least I think it will, into a discussion about why they were left on the outside looking in when the ABA merged with the NBA. But but before we get there, I'd like to know where your interest in the Colonels comes from and who your writing partner, Lloyd Pinky Gardner, is and why you asked him to help you write the book, Kentucky Colonels of the American Basketball Association, The Real Story of the Team, left behind. So what was your interest or what is your interest in the Colonels? Well, I had seen the, uh, I had seen the Colonels play, uh, from their inception. Uh, I had gone to college, uh, Warren at, uh, Western Kentucky university mm-hmm. first and then transferred to uh, the university of Kentucky to get my degree in journalism. Mm-hmm. And, uh, along the way I had been a sports writer and a sports editor for both college papers and I knew some of the players for Western that became that were on the early first uh, Colonel roster, uh, and then I knew some of the UK players that were on the Colonel roster. So uh, uh, growing up uh, not in Louisville but outside of Louisville, I found my way up there to see uh, the Colonels play, and it was uh, it was just such an oddity to see a, a, a team play with a three point basket, to see them play with a shot clock. <laughs> to see them play with a red, white, and blue ball that mm-hmm. was like more like a beach ball. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there were just some things that were happening. But these guys that were playing were great basketball players that I had seen a lot of them play in college and knew about some that didn't. And uh, they were good enough to play in the NBA, but for whatever reason, uh, they chose uh, to play in the uh, ABA, the American Basketball Association. 
And actually, I believe Western Kentucky and UK both played a very large role in the Colonel's history with all the different players that actually played for the Kentucky Colonels. And coaches. And coaches, uh, exactly. The, the very first coach was a guy named Johnny Givens. He didn't last long. He lasted a few games before he was fired. Uh, and, and then a guy named Gene Rhodes, who had a history of state high school championships in Kentucky and had been an assistant at Western Kentucky University, a very successful coach. Then he came in there. And then you had players like Bobby Rasco, who was an All-American, mm-hmm. Daryl Carrier who uh, was one of the all-time greats in the ABA. Mm-hmm. And then from the University of Kentucky, at one time, a coach came Frank Ramsey, mm-hmm. who, was a, who was a major league star in the, uh, uh, for the Boston Celtics, uh, for Red Arback uh, in the NBA. Mm-hmm. And uh, the University of Kentucky players, uh, some of your listeners may recognize the names Larry Conley, mm-hmm. uh, Cotton, Cotton Nash, one of the all-time great players at Kentucky, so they were on those early rosters uh, uh, with the ABA Kentucky Colonels. One of the neat things about your book, which was published several years back, uh, 2011, is how you structured the book. I like how you dive deep into the history about the Colonels and the surroundings and the different players that played for the Colonels. And then you counted on Pinky Gardner to really dive in and go into each individual season. Tell me about Pinky. Who is he and why you ask him to help you write the book? Well, Lord Gardner, I'd known him for a long time from Western Kentucky days. Uh, He was a uh, a manager at one time for uh, uh, Western Kentucky's head coach was John Oldham, who uh, put a team in the Final Four uh, in 1971. He had Jim McDaniels was one of his great players, mm-hmm. he was one of the all-time greats, seven-footer. They had the great classic duels with Artis Gilmore. Uh, but Pinky went uh, of their nine of the Colonels' nine years of existence. Seven of those years, Pinky Gardner was the trainer for the Colonels. Mm-hmm. And I've always found, Warren, that if you really want to find the inside of what's going on with a basketball team, I've done several sports books, if you go and you can find the managers or the trainers, you can get more good, solid information about what actually went on behind the scenes. A player is going to be limited to what they can tell you. Uh, for background. A coach is going to limit you very much to what he can tell you. But that trainer or that manager has always been the bridge between the player and the coaches, and they have more information than uh, than you can actually write about. But Pinky Gardner is an icon in the city of Louisville. He coached a Fairdale High School to a state championship basketball crown in the state of Kentucky. Uh, he puts on a classic uh, uh, annual basketball tournament where he brings in high school teams from all over the country. It's called the King of the Bluegrass. Mm -hmm. But he was just uh, a friend of mine, and we spent over a year together doing the interviews and all of this and him reconstructing. He had actually saved every scorebook, every scorebook that he had for all nine years of the Colonel's existence. Wow. I mean, down to who the referees were, who the PA guy was that night. And he traveled and he sat on the bench. You know, he was sitting on the bench with the Gene Rhodeses uh, and the Alex Groses and the Frank Ramseys and Babe McCarthy and in the latter part of the Colonel's history, Hubie Brown. Yep. So there was nobody better than to take those scorebooks 
and pretty much reconstruct what actually happened in the books and his memories into those yearly uh, evaluations. Wow, what a great observation. That's so interesting. And and as a trainer, as I was reading, to be ejected, to get a T, that's a pretty <laughs> pretty, pretty <laughs> well, cool thing, too. Yeah. Yeah, well, I had some of the photos in the book, and I tell you what, I'm really proud of really proud of the book. It's a great book. Uh, it's a great book that, that we have. Well, thank you. Uh, there's been several books written about the ABA. There was a book called Loose Balls that mm-hmm. I really enjoyed. Uh, then there was a, a book called Airball uh, that was out there, but but my book concentrated pretty much on the kernels itself. And uh, John Y. Brown was uh, who some of your listeners, mm-hmm. if they don't know his name, he was the former governor of Kentucky. He's the one who purchased Kentucky Fried Chicken for Colonel Harlan Sanders. Mm-hmm. He was married to Phyllis George yep. Brown, former yep. Miss America, and who made uh, some of her claim to fame was working on the old CBS shows, the pregame shows with Brent Musburger. Uh, and, and some of those people, but uh, John Y. Brown was out there, and I think one of the neatest things where where he uh, uh, he kind of so, in a way he sold the state of Kentucky and Louisville out. Yeah, and and, uh, and I want to we're going to dive into that for sure. Yeah, uh, by all by all rights, and, and you read the book, and uh, by all rights, the Louisville should have a team uh, in the NBA right now. Uh, the city of Louisville is the large is and in, in its surrounding area is uh, the largest metro area in the nation without a big time professional sports team. Wow! I.e. hockey, uh, soccer, uh, football, basketball, baseball. It has none of those. It's got some minor leagues, but uh, part of the reason over the history is that uh, Rick Pitino, who's former head coach at the University of Louisville, and the athletic director there, Tom Jurich, have done a good job uh, over several years of try- of keeping professional basketball out of there. Mm-hmm. They did not want to compete against professional uh, basketball. They weren't sure. They didn't have enough confidence that uh, the city could support the University of Louisville, big-time basketball against a professional NBA team. Mm-hmm. So they have lobbied uh, the people with all the wherewithal to keep the NBA out. However, there is a major move, as I understand it now, led by Dan Issel, mm. uh, former Kentucky All-American, former Colonel player, yep. former Denver Nugget player and coach. He is leading an effort to try to create a, an interest uh, to get an NBA team in there. Well, for sure. I mean, from everything I read and from what I know and remember, the Colonels, um, they always had a lot of fans at their game. Hey, you opened the book with a very interesting topic, that the ABA was formed, or do we want to say hatched, by a guy named Dennis Murphy. So if I understand this correctly, it could ultimately be taken in or absorbed or merged with the NBA. Can you talk about that? You create something so ultimately somebody else is going to take it over. Well, I found it kind of interesting about that. He said uh, he set himself up and set the league up. Uh, I don't know, to, to not to necessarily to be a fail, failure, 
but to be strong enough to be absorbed, as you say, to be merged into the NBA, much like he took the playbook from the old AFL and the NFL. Mm-hmm. Uh, when some of the football, and then they merged and had that very first Super Bowl, uh, it seems like centuries ago. Yeah. But he did. He set it up uh, to where it was, uh, and he was a, it was a pretty smart operation. But ultimately, the teams, a lot of the teams fell on hard times. Ownerships were not solid. You had non-basketball people kind of running the shows. And some of them felt, some people, fans, felt like it was a circus uh, more than anything. And uh, But you did have some strong teams that packed the crowds in. And when it was all, they started out in 1968. Dennis Murphy did. He actually started putting it all together in 67. Uh, in 1976 was the final year. Right. And what's ironic is that the Colonels won the ABA championship in 75 with the great team that they had of artists Gilmore and Dan Issel. I mean, they mm-hmm. were a team Louis Dampier and some of the real great players, Bird Averett, that were in there. And John Y, though, took the money, John Y. Brown took the money and ran. They yep. all got together and said, okay, here's what we'll do. John, why we'll give you $3 million if you'll fold up your uh, tent and go home. And what we'll do, we're going to take in the New York Nets. We're going to take in the San Antonio Spurs, the Denver Nuggets, and the Indianapolis Pacers. Yep. And so John Y. took his $3 million, uh, much to the disappointment of the Kentucky people, and still talk about it all year, these years later. Uh, there's a, a segment of the sports fans out there that still hold that against John Y. Brown. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But he being the businessman that he was, he parlayed that $3 million into ownership of the Buffalo Braves. And ultimately an the Boston team. Celtics. Yeah, and then he transferred that into ownership into the Boston Celtics. Yep. yep. You know, we're, and, talking, uh, we're, we're talking about owners, and, and, I, and I, I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I got to go with it this way. Yeah. Over the course of their history, the Colonels, I guess they had a significant roll call of owners, but the owners I would like to concentrate are Joe and Mamie Gregory, the Fab Five, John Y. and Ellie Brown. So I'd like to first talk about Joe and Mamie, probably one of the most colorful owners in sports, especially at that time. And you used a word before. It was like a circus sometimes with these owners. Um, I don't know if Joe and Mamie would qualify as a circus act, but tell us a little bit about them and how they became the owners of the Colonels. Well, uh, Joe Gregory had been a, had, had been a basketball fan uh, for a long time, had actually gone to Western Kentucky University uh, down here. I don't know for how long, don't know if he ever graduated. But then he became very interested in, in the, the dog business, breeding dogs and showing dogs and handling dogs and these world-famous Westminster dog shows. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then he ran into Mamie Reynolds, who became Mamie Gregory. They got married, and she had the dog. In fact, the mascot of the first Colonel team was a little dog, and I'm trying to remember the name of it. It was named Ziggy. Yeah, Ziggy. And Ziggy wore a different outfit for every game and had its own seat there at midcourt and, <laughs> and uh, was just uh, just crazy. And people tell me that uh, they would come to the games 
and that Mamie would get an ice cream comb, and Ziggy would take one lick off of it, and she'd take the next one. <laughs> and uh, Ziggy and Mamie shared the ice cream, but she was from a very, very wealthy family. And uh, uh, she was from the Reynolds family, the, the, the Reynolds tobacco family out mm. of North Carolina. Her mm-hmm. father had been a U.S. senator, and she was worth millions. Her grandmother actually at one time owned the Hope Diamond. Wow. So that helps put some things in perspective of, of the wealth. And there's a story that circulates, and, and she, didn't, she didn't dress like she had money. Uh, in fact, it was said that Ziggy wore better outfits to the ball game, Ziggy the dog, than Mamie did. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, there was a story in there that uh, she was looking for a new car, and she drove the, her pickup truck into the car lot and went in and looked, picked out this Corvette or something, and they asked how she planned to pay for it, and she said a check. And they said, "Well, we we can't take a, a check from you. We've got to we've got to uh, kind of research this a little bit." Well, she said, "Well, you check with the with the bank." So she called the the car dealer called the bank, and they said, "You can take a check from her up to forty million dollars." <laughs> so, uh, needless to say, she parked her pickup truck to be picked up later, and drove out of there with a new Corvette. Wow! So Mamie, she was she was uh, quite the the person there in Louisville. And her and Joe traveled to a lot of the games, uh, and they were very upfront about things. But she liked to, uh, she kind of liked to let people know that uh, uh, she was uh, she was the star of the show along with the tar- with the Colonels, and uh, she took a liking to a lot of the players. And and you know the old ABA day, uh, days, if there's anybody who remembers. It was sort of like you went to a basketball game and a fight showed up. Yeah. Because almost every game. It was Duke City, and uh, she would like to encourage to run out on the floor maybe and protect some of her star players and stuff. But uh, uh, she was quite the person, didn't get along with all the coaches, and when she didn't get along with them, they were usually history. Uh, but she was uh, she was something to deal with. So why did Joe and Mamie ultimately sell the team? Well, they uh, they felt like they had taken it far enough, as far as they could, and uh, so they uh, they kind of decided that they were going to get a, get out of the business. And uh, a group of Louisvillians came along that were uh, headed headed up by a guy Wendell Cherry, who eventually that the business, the hospital business, turned into Humana. Mm. a worldwide corporation. Wow, uh, that you've probably heard the name sure. with. So. Uh, it was just uh, some of the some of the local wealthy businessmen of which uh, uh, John Y was a part of the group. Yep. Mike Storen. Yep. Uh, Mike Storen was one of them that was involved early on, who became the uh, the general manager of the team. And by the way, who was the father of Hannah Storm? Oh. Uh, H- Hannah Storm, uh, the lady uh, sports journalist that uh, you've heard of. She was actually born in Louisville. Uh, but she changed her name from Hannah Storen to Hannah Storm, but that was uh, uh, the daughter of Mike Storen. Oh, interesting. And then, uh, then that group sold out eventually to John Y. and uh, uh, Ellie Brown. Right. So so John Y. And, and his wife Ellie take control of the team. Why why did they get control of the team? Were the other people just no longer interested? Did John Y. see something? Tell me about that. Well, he bought them out. 
and he bought them out and pretty much put the team in Ellie's name. Right. She basically she ran the team. She ran the team, and she put together an all-female board uh, that she had in Louisville that was made up of eight or nine, ten prominent uh, women in the city of Louisville. And uh, John Y. Uh, was kind of to the side, although everybody knows that behind the scenes he ran. John Y. was one of these that liked to have his pulse on everything. But Ellie was a, Ellie was a strong-headed woman, and uh, she was actually involved. And I remember... Uh, when I worked for Western as the associate athletic director a number of years ago, and when she was involved with the Colonels, she came down as the president, and she spoke uh, to a group uh, at Western Kentucky University, and the, the Colonels came down and played an exhibition game uh, there. They played games in uh, Lexington uh, over there, and then they played games in Cincinnati. And uh, they were trying to appeal to more just Louisville, so they kind of moved around the state and actually played official ABA games in Lexington, Cincinnati over a period of time. And ultimately, under the leadership of John Y. and Ellie, as you had said earlier, they did ultimately win an ABA championship, and they had one heck of a roster, as you also pointed out, and a part of that roster that won was Dan Issel. And after they well, win, they get rid of Dan, and that might have actually led to John and Ellie divorcing. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, they uh, they had uh, some real upfront arguments about it. Uh, Dan Issel, of course, was one of the most popular players to ever play at the University of Kentucky. And when he came over to Louisville... Uh, he was extremely popular, as was Louis Dampier, uh, that had played at Kentucky. And I think I wrote a little something in the book that they'd had a big argument. She actually threw a cup or a cup of coffee or something at John Y. Right. Because Dan Issel, a lot of people felt, was the franchise. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. he, was a, he was a great player. Uh, he was a great public relations guy. He sold tickets to the game. His presence was just unbelievable. And uh, they didn't, he was nicknamed the horse, and he's sort of like secretariat. I mean, you know, he was the man, and when they traded uh, Dan Issel, it was sort of the demise of not only their relationship, some said it uh, it would lead to the divorce. I don't know if that's actually true, uh, but nevertheless, they did. But it certainly uh, led to the demise of the uh, pro basketball in the city of Louisville. And of course, you know, the to... ABA. Yeah, go ahead. The ABA had just uh, Warren had some great players back then. I mean, you know, they were they were at the forefront of keeping stats. The NBA didn't keep offense. Yeah, you were ta- you, you talk about that in your book. That's it's the, really the, interesting. The the, the 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 NBA didn't keep turnovers. I think they labeled something as errors or something. But uh, the the NBA was uh, at the forefront of so much that goes on today in basketball. But when you think about some of the players uh, that the ABA had, you know, Rick Barry, uh, Dr. J, George McGinnis, you know, and, of course, uh, Issel and Gilmore. Marvin uh, Barnes. Uh, um, yes, Bad News Barnes. They had, uh, they had some of the great players in basketball who, when the merger did come about, and uh, or it, I don't know if you call it a merger, really, maybe the takeover would yeah. be a better word, but some of those players became big stars in the NBA. Yep, yep, they sure did. 
Hey, after the divorce, as you had mentioned, he ends up marrying Phyllis George, becomes governor of Kentucky, and yeah. and ultimately somehow the ownership of the Colonels was his entree into professional sports, and he basically parlayed all of it into becoming the owner of the Boston Celtics. And all of this from his relationship as with Kentucky Fried Chicken and 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 buying it out from Harlan Sanders. I mean, yeah. the guy is a true success story. The way he John Y. Brown must have had some sort of vision. Well, he he did, and uh, I, I tell you, the, uh, the the interview when Lloyd and I drove up to his house in Lexington to interview him, we spent. Uh, maybe three hours with him at his house. And it was a hoot. I mean, when you walk, uh, he was the chairman, a chairman at one time of the democratic party. And when you walked in his house, there are pictures with anybody that was anybody in politics and the democratic party with the presidents and everything else that he had. And he was a guy that was a, a sharp guy, pretty smooth talker, uh, had had been married to Ellie Brown and Phyllis George Brown. They were divorced and uh, uh, had done what he had done business-wise. Uh, I actually talked to him one time about uh, uh, doing a book on his life. Uh -huh. I was never able to. I was able never able to get to that point with him, but uh, we'd had some interesting conversations along the way. But his interview with him was a treat uh, because of him just kind of telling us uh, how this all came about. Uh, he talked about Red Arback, and he says Red Arback was one of those. Then he didn't get along. Red didn't like John Y, and John Y didn't like Red. Uh, he, he said Red was one of those guys that, that thought he was important and acted like he was important. He said, <laughs> I didn't go for that. So you know, so anyway, anyway he, uh, John Y is uh, still out there kicking. Uh, I understand that he is lost a lot of the money that he had, but he's still a force to be reckoned with uh, as a businessman in the state of Kentucky. You know, the other night at dinner, I was uh, speaking with people I know about, well, the worst jobs we've ever had. And a lot of it's funny stuff when you look back at, at what you did to get to the point where you are today. And for John Y. Brown, if I follow correctly, he basically built his fortune, or at least started his fortune, by going door-to-door -door selling encyclopedias while attending law school. What was that about? Well, he did that. Uh, now, let John, y., uh, John Y. grew up with somewhat of a silver spoon in his mouth. Uh, he was John Y. Brown, Jr., his dad was John Y. Brown, who ran for governor himself over the years and was very politically connected, but uh, didn't win the gubernatorial uh, election here in Kentucky. But nevertheless, John Y. was from a wealthy family mm -hmm. uh, in Lexington. Mm -hmm. uh, Lexington is uh, still to this day considered by some a blue blood town in Kentucky. Uh, when you've got your racehorses and everything, uh, you know, some people... Some people might eat Colonel Sanders' chicken, but there's a lot that eat prime rib and sip mint juleps around the state of Kentucky, <laughs> I tell you. And, and uh, John Y. grew up in that, but he was a worker, and his dad said, you need to work, and he did. He was very successful. Uh, I don't know. He was considered the top salesman 
uh, in his group for encyclopedias. He went to law school, uh, became a lawyer. So he did all the right things uh, to get to where he is. And he took chances. He borrowed money and made money. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's lost money. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of funny with, with John Y. He, uh, he liked to gamble a lot. And uh, it was my understanding that he had, and I think I alluded to that a little bit in the book. Uh, and I know before uh, I got the book out, he called me one night at my house and asked me if there's any way he could see a copy of the book before it was printed. And I said, well, I just, uh, no, I can't do that. And he says, well, I'm just concerned of how you portrayed me yeah. in the book. <laughs> and I said, uh, and I said, Governor, I can assure you I didn't throw you under the book bus. I wrote the, the facts, as you told me, and everything. I said, I didn't go out there and speculate on, speculate on anything you did or didn't do. Mm, interesting. Protecting his reputation. All right, enough with ownership. Let's get to the product on the floor. And it was a pretty darn good product. And let's start at the beginning, year one. The Colonels played in the Eastern Division, and they tied with the New York Americans, who later became the New York Nets. They tied in the regular season with the Nets. They each had a record of 36 wins and 42 losses. And that was 18 games back of the Pittsburgh Pipers, who – were the first ever ABA champions. Tell us a little bit about that first year. Who were the original stars of the Kentucky Colonels? Well, uh, they had a they had a, one of their big stars was a guy named Goose Ligon. Uh, Goose Ligon had been a great high school player in Indiana, considered one of the all time greats. Everybody in the country wanted him, but he got in a little trouble with the law, spent a little time in jail. Came out of jail, and then the colonel signed him, and he was one of their most colorful players mm-hmm. that initially uh, played with them. And then Daryl Carrier, a Kentucky boy who could flat bomb it, a great three-point shooter, and he teamed with Louis Dampier. And to this day, there's a lot of basketball people who know far more than I do about it say that the backcourt of Carrier and Dampier maybe was the greatest combo ever. And they wow. said it ranked right over there with Cousy and Charmin. Wow. You know, from the old Boston Celtics. But uh, that was the mainstay of their team. And they signed some guys. Cotton Nash was on that first roster. But uh, he didn't He didn't really – he was a great college player, but didn't – an All-American Kentucky. It's when he graduated from Kentucky, he was the all-time leading scorer. But he never panned out in pro basketball, so he went over and played a few years with the Chicago White Sox in baseball. Mm, interesting. Uh, but – Walt Simon was another guy who had come out of the East on that first team. They had players that your, your listeners may know, Cincy Powell, uh, were some of them, Randy Mahaffey, who had played at Clemson, mm-hmm. uh, Bobby Rasco, a great player at Western Kentucky, Ted McLean, the Hound Dog McLean, who had played at uh, Tennessee State for some of the great teams in, in their day. So these were some of the early, uh, early players uh, that the Colonels had. And and so they they do they go thirty six and forty two that first year and they have to play the Americans in a one game playoff. Only the game never happened. What happened? The Colonels won it by forfeit. Well, the best I remember on that, and you're testing my memory, but it seemed like the uh, facility uh, was didn't wasn't up to par to have the basketball game. Yep. Yep. And they had to cancel it, and they gave the wind uh, to the Colonels. 
an, an auspicious start to the, the ABA's first year of playoffs. Yes. Ultimately, the Colonels were ousted that year by a team called the Minnesota Muskies, and that came in the conference semifinals. The Muskies won the best of five series three games to two. One player on that inaugural team for Kentucky, as you said, was Louis Dampier. And he is just one of three players to have played every year of the ABA's nine-year existence and just one of two players to play every year with the same team, the other being Byron Beck, who played all nine years with the Denver franchise. And the Denver team, I think, changed its name a couple of times. Tell us a little yeah. bit more about Louis. He was, as you said, an incredible shooter. Now, what I find well, interesting uh, is that that he chose the ABA over the NBA. He's a great shooter. And every year the Colonels look to replace him. Why? Well, they that because he was uh, fairly short. He was five ten, five eleven, and they kept thinking he's getting some uh, age on him, but nobody could ever beat him out. Uh, I saw Louis Dampier first play uh, in the Kentucky Indiana High School High School All Star Game. Uh, he played for Southport High School in out of Indianapolis and was a great player out of Indiana. And uh, and then I saw him play uh, all of his career at the University of Kentucky. And I'm going to tell you right now, he was one tough little player. <laughs> he played for Adolph Rupp at Kentucky, and uh, Rupp, Rupp went up there and literally stole him out of the state of Indiana, out from under uh, IU and out from under Purdue, mm-hmm. and everybody else saw him. But the thing he had going against him was his size. But Adolph mm-hmm. Rupp knew that if he could have a player that, that would shoot like him, and ultimately – he played for what a team in Kentucky called Rupp's Runts. <laughs> uh, and it was, it was the team, 1966, that lost to Texas Western in the NCAA Finals. Oh, and, Louis, and uh, Texas so, Western, and, is you, and, and, and for our listeners, just so they know, Texas Western is now known as UTEP, University of Texas at El Paso. That's right, and they were, uh, you know, they put uh, one of the first, they put five all-black players on the floor, uh, and it was what was made into the movie, what, Glory, was it Glory Road? Yes, uh, I believe that's the name of the movie. Glory Road, but on that team was Larry Conley, who was a heck of a player mm-hmm. and, and an ESPN analyst, Pat Riley, wow, uh, gen- general manager for the Miami Heat, uh, then they had uh, another Tommy Cron, Thad Jarris was on that team, and Louis Dampier, and the tallest one on the team was six five, and that wow. was Thad Jarris, the center. Wow. wow! And they were called Rupp's Runts, played for Adolph Rupp. Uh, they beat Duke along the way, but then they got beat in the finals by Texas Western, and Don Haskins was the coach of that team. If your listeners might remember that name, but Louis Dampier was just a heck of a player. He's a, he lives in Louisville now. He's uh, I see him every now and then, and gotten to know him a little bit. He's a very unassuming guy. Uh, he has uh, uh, been elected to the Basketball Hall of Fame, but he's definitely one of the all-time greats. Uh, he uh, and when Dan Hessel yep. was coaching the Denver Nuggets after Dan quit playing, he became the coach of the Denver Nuggets. Louis went out there and was assistant assistant coach there for several years. Mm. Why did he choose to play in the ABA instead of the NBA? I don't know. 
uh, I don't know, unless he felt like uh, uh, that it was a, just a better opportunity for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but let me let me tell you, here's what some people don't rem- uh, don't realize too: that the salaries were a lot different then than they are now. In fact, uh, doing interviews with players, uh, Daryl Carrier initially and Bobby Rasco were all Americans, and they had NBA offers. And uh, back then, uh, because the ABA hadn't been formed, they could make money. They signed with the Phillips Oilers. Uh, That's right. They played in industrial leagues. They played an industrial league with them, and a lot of players could make more money because salaries back then were nine, ten, eleven, and twelve thousand dollars a year, and a lot of those NBA players, because I talked to Frank Ramsey and stuff about this during the off season, they had jobs because they weren't going to be able to make what they wanted to just on their NBA salaries back then. So players uh, went that route, and then when the ABA colonel started up. They attracted some of these players. Said, "Hey, we need you in this league," and uh, they were offering salaries because you had a lot of a lot of owners with a lot of wealth, just like you did in the OAFL mm-hmm. football deal mm-hmm. when they were signing the Joe Namath of the world. You had them laying out the money to sign some of these players to get them to come in. But whatever uh, whatever reason, Louis decided just on the ABA. Trust me, he had an opportunity at some point to play in the NBA and then ultimately did a little bit for San Antonio when the league folded. Right. Now, what about his backcourt mate, Daryl Carrier? He helped, as you say, form one of the most explosive backcourts, not only in ABA history, but in basketball history. Tell us a little bit about Daryl's game. Well, Daryl, uh, Daryl Carrier, uh, and he would be a, probably a good person someday if you get on there. He's quite an entertaining uh, interview. Daryl was from right outside of Bowling Green and chose to come to Western Kentucky and play for legendary coach Ed Diddle. And Daryl was a, a, a great player. Had uh, uh, Western had a 50-point game and uh, went with the Phillips Oilers for a year and he made some of those teams, played for U.S. international teams all over the world, was a great player, and he was absolutely a, a natural. In fact, he was the Gregory's, Joe and Mamie Gregory's, favorite players, and they made it a mission to make sure they got Daryl Kayer signed. And if you look at the percentages, I may have those percentages in my book between Daryl and, and Louie, uh, Dampier on their three-point percentage and their field goal percentage and their free throw percentage. Daryl Carrier is considered one of the greatest shooters ever. And I'll tell you a funny story. Uh, I asked Daryl, I interviewed him. I think I may have had this in the book. Mm-hmm. I interviewed Louis Dampier and I said, Louis, who's the greatest shooter you ever saw? I said, Louis, you, Adolph, Rupp, Adolph Rupp called you Louis the greatest shooter that he had ever seen. Louis, who's the greatest shooter you ever saw? He didn't hesitate. He said, Daryl Carrier. Mm. So I went to Daryl, and I said, Daryl, Louis says you're the greatest shooter he ever saw. I said, Daryl, who's the greatest shooter that you ever saw? He didn't hesitate, and he said, Daryl Carrier. (laughs) 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 And that's the the confidence Daryl has as a shooter. And Daryl is probably today, Daryl's probably 77, 78 years old. And his son, Josh Carrier, was a Mr. Basketball in the state of Kentucky several years ago and played oh. four years at the University of Kentucky. Cool. And uh, 
they have a covered they have a covered outside uh, gym floor uh it's 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 got a roof over it but it's open air sides and it's got the glass backboards and everything and he's had some people from old players to come back and they play and everything and and Daryl lives outside of Bowling Green still in the same community he grew up in but they call it the Carrier Dome <laughs> out there so he Darryl a Carrier different Carrier Dome Carrier Dome yeah, a yeah different right. a different Carrier Dome Hey, you know, those early years, the Colonels really started to build something. They went about their business. They were a solid team. Um, in their second year, they went 42-36, and 36, and they were ousted by the Indiana Pacers in the first round, four games to three. Their third year, they went 45-39 and 39 under the new ownership of the Fab Five. They finally won a playoff series beating the New York Nets four games to three. But again, they lost to the Pacers, this time in the Eastern Conference Finals, four games to one. Then along came Frank Ramsey for year four, and the Colonels finally made it to the finals. And this despite finishing 11 games behind the Virginia Squires, But they beat a team called the Miami Floridians and the Squires in the playoffs and took the Utah Stars to seven games in the finals before finally losing. What can you tell us about that season and Frank Ramsey and getting over that hump to finally winning a playoff series and making it to the finals? Well, Frank Ramsey was a, a unique hire. Uh, for the Colonels. He'd gone to UK. Uh, he was up there, one of the great teams, the NCAA championship team with uh, Cliff Hagen and Lou Seropoulos and Frank Ramsey played for Adolph Rupp. Mm-hmm. And uh, 19, 1954, they had a great team. And that was about the time John Y. Brown was at UK and he knew Frank Ramsey. And Frank Ramsey was out of a little community called Madisonville, Kentucky. And he had gotten into the banking business and they went to Frank Ramsey, and John Y. Uh, put a little pressure, said, hey, you know, you can do something here. You're well-known. We need you. Frank Ramsey had never coached before, although some had said he was a coach on the floor when he played for the Boston Celtics. He was mm-hmm. one of the great – they called him the sixth man for Red Arback. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he made all NBA teams coming off the bench. But they brought him in there for a little while. He didn't coach, he didn't coach the Colonels long. Not not, not uh, many just, people did. Uh, yeah, he yeah he was just in there for the one season, and then he said, "I'm not doing this anymore. I'm going back to my my banking business." And uh, so that's kind of you know what he did. Uh, that's the one year they had uh, three different coaches. Uh, the best I remember, they had Gene Rhodes, who yep. had coached them probably as long as anybody, and they had another great Kentucky player who had been in the promotions department. And when Gene Rhodes was fired and didn't get along really good with the uh, with the uh, Gregories, Alex Groza stepped up there. He was a great player, at Kentucky, and he was the brother of Lou Groza. Some of your old time listeners oh, may football. remember Lou Groza of the Cleveland Browns uh, back in the fifties. But Frank Ramsey came in there just to finish out the season. And and, and, and uh, Alex Groza, it didn't Alex Groza. He he only coached the team for a couple of games, if I remember correctly. Yeah, he, yeah, it wasn't many games at all. Uh, I, I don't remember how many exactly. Uh, it's been a while uh, since I looked at that. 
but he didn't coach many, but he still, you know, he still was one of the coaches for the Cardinals. Mm-hmm. So, so they, so Ramsey leads him into the finals. They go and they lose to the stars four games to three Ramsey's out. And now things get fun. The Colonels bring in Joe Mullaney to coach after he had just yep. been let go by the Los Angeles Lakers for failing to win a championship with them. The guy can win, but he can't win the big game. And even bigger was the fact that the Colonels finally got their big man. They got Artis Gilmore. Now, they had a front court that included Dan Issel and Artis Gilmore. First, let's talk a little more about Dan Issel. Tell me about how great a basketball player Dan Issel was and what he meant to the Kentucky community and the Kentucky Colonels. Well, he, he was everything. He, he, was, uh, he was the reason people bought tickets. Uh, he was a known commodity from his UK days. I mean, considered one of the most popular players to ever play at the University of Kentucky. And even though this team was in Louisville, make no mistake about it, there are probably as many Kentucky fans, uh, University of Kentucky fans that live in Louisville as there are University of Louisville fans. Uh, it, that's just the way it is. And that doesn't mean to put down the University of Louisville at all because Denny Crum had had some great teams and so did Patino. But Dan Issel... Uh, was the guy came here, you know, he couldn't really jump. He wasn't that fast, but he was six nine, and that guy had a way. He had a big body, and he could score. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, he had great hands. Uh, and then when you had some of the – you had a guy like Louis Dampier, it, hey, it was hard to collapse on Dan Issel mm -hmm. because you had Louis Dampier, uh, Dampier out there, and for a few games, Daryl Carrier – uh, before he left the Colonels, but uh, Dan Issel was the man. And then when they brought Artis Gilmore in, he'd had a great career. People in Kentucky knew all about him. He had played at Jacksonville mm -hmm. uh, University, and uh, they knew him from the NCAA bouts, uh, the run-ins with Western Kentucky. Uh, Gilmore went up against Big Jim McDaniels, head-to-head -head competition, and then he had gone up against Dan Issel in the NCAA tournament. So uh, they, they slipped uh, they slipped Artis Gilmore in and hit him out, if you can hide somebody. That's yeah, I wanted, I wanted to get to that real quick because the ABA, while they had a draft, they would, they would still allow teams to try and, and – they would allow teams to go out and sign players before the draft so – the NBA could never get their hands on these guys. Talk about that a little, because that's how I think Artis Gilmore wound up on the Kentucky Colonels. They they well, took him it, before the draft. Uh, well, they did, and 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 who knows? You know, there was a lot of shenanigans played back then. I think the deal, uh, the deal they had, and, and one of the people that we've never talked about of being the first commissioner of this league was a guy named George Mikan. Oh, who, sure. He, you know, he was one of yeah. the all-time great players that had played for Minneapolis, the old Minneapolis Lakers in the days gone by. But he was the commis first commissioner, and so he brought a little credibility to it. But anyway, their philosophy was, uh, back to what you said, their philosophy, listen, it doesn't matter how we sign them, sign them. 
and uh, go out there and get them. And they would hide players out, and they would sign contracts, and they would post-date contracts and all this, whatever they needed to do to get it done. Uh, but they uh, brought big artists in and, and hit him out at one of the executive end of something, a, a big motel near the airport mm-hmm. uh, and near the fairgrounds, Freedom Hall in Louisville, and uh, got him signed, sealed, and delivered. And, uh, man, when he had uh, Dan Issel and uh, Artis Gilmore on the same team, on the same floor at the same time, buddy, that was uh, that was something to deal with for the opposing teams. I don't know if people really know just how good a ball player Artis Gilmore was because for most of our listeners, I would imagine they remember him with the Chicago Bulls. Can you expand a yes. little bit more on just how good, how dominating a player Artis Gilmore was? I mean, he well, made an immediate impact, and it's a tough argument, but I think an argument can be made that he could have been the greatest player in ABA history. I mean, this guy put up monster numbers. Well, he had a he was seven two, and he had an afro of another five or six inches. <laughs> so, so he when he walked out on the court, uh, because he was unlike anything anybody had seen in the ABA. Because the big knock on the ABA in the early early days that they couldn't get the big men. That they were a guard league. Well, they, they got a big shooters, man with was, artists. Well, when they got artists going, and they had uh, got Doctor J going, and some of the flyers like that, artist Gilmore could run, he could jump, he could shoot, he had a hook shot, uh, he could rebound, he could block shots like you wouldn't believe. So he was the piece of the puzzle there, and uh, it was a deal where. Uh, some people didn't know if Dan Issel and Artis Gilmore could exist on the same team, but believe me, they did. Yeah, and 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 that season, that seventy-one seventy-two season with Issel and Gilmore, they set the ABA record by winning sixty-eight games. They went sixty-eight and sixteen. I think only the Golden State Warriors, who won 73 games a couple years ago, the Chicago Bulls, who won 72 games when Michael Jordan was there, and the Lakers, who won 69 games so long ago, are the only three teams to ever win more games than the Colonels did in that 71-72 season. The, 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 The Colonels should have been a shoe in that year to reach the ABA finals, or at least everyone thought they should be. But not only did they not win the finals, they didn't even make it to the finals. They lost to the Nets in the first round of the playoffs, four games to two. I mean, wow, what happened? What went wrong? You know, I I don't really remember what went wrong, but I know what it was started the – the first crack in Joe Mullaney's career there because the, ultimately they said, we've got to have a championship. And as you alluded to earlier, Joe Mullaney had been fired from his previous job because he couldn't deliver a championship with talent. And then all of a sudden here he's sitting there with some of the best talent in pro basketball, not winning. And I think they gave Joe one more year after that. And he didn't win again. It he didn't just, win again. Yeah, I mean, you you win 68 games and you're eliminated in the first round. That's a tough yeah. pill to swallow. 
Yeah, your future doesn't look too good, does it? <laughs> no, it doesn't. And <laughs> and amazingly, he resurfaces a little bit later as coach, I believe, of Memphis. They uh, uh, they gave him a shot there, and he didn't win there either. Hey, let's dive a little deeper into Mike Storen. Did he have a stake in ownership in the team? Uh, you know, he he was a GM with the team, um, then ultimately leaves the team and becomes commissioner of the ABA, replacing the guy who you just spoke about a couple moments ago, the great George Mikan. Let's dive in a little bit deeper about Mike Storen. Tell me a little bit more about him. Well, you know, Mike Storen was a promoter. And he'd been with the Pacers some, and then he moved around. But everything I researched and, and everything I found out, because you, you would talk uh, to some of these people, and they said Mike Storm was never owner an owner. But I found that he was an owner. I saw some papers and stuff that showed he was an owner in that group with John White Brown at one time. But then uh, Mike, uh, he had a he had a little bit of a raw edge to him. Uh, and, and he, uh, he spoke his mind, uh, but everybody, he could speak his mind as long as, uh, he, you know, he was winning. Uh, you can, it's funny how that works. Uh, but, uh, yeah, anyway, yeah. I think he, he, he ended up uh, then leaving there and he, he became the commissioner, but he was over at Memphis for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he just, he was, he moved around and you've talked about some of these coaches and still the same thing today. Worn in professional sports, how these coaches are recycled. Yeah, you know, uh, I mean, you're right. we see it. Right. We, we see it in the NBA. We see it in the NFL. My gosh, these guys never leave. It doesn't matter what they do. They always find a job. They go to a program. They become an assistant coach or an assistant uh, GM. And all of a sudden, you look up and they're the GM or the, the head coach at another franchise. Mm-hmm. It's just, yep. you know, and that's the way it seems like it's always been in professional sports. Yeah, yeah. Hey, quick sidebar. I've got to ask, who is Penny Ann Early? <laughs> Penny, Penny Ann Early is a classic. You know what you do? You're, you're in the early days of the Kentucky Colonels. You're in the early days of the ABA, and you're doing anything you can to create some interest and draw a crowd. Penny Ann Early was the jockey and had ridden there at local uh, the season at Churchill Downs and over at Keeneland, Lexington. And so uh, they thought, well, now this will be great. She's a pretty good athlete. She can hang on to a horse and ride a race. She's got to be fairly strong. <laughs> so they signed Penny Ann early to a one-game contract, and she actually checked into a basketball game. And, and a lot of people thought it was a joke, and it was a joke. But it made for a few good stories uh, in the local newspaper in Louisville. And uh, but but her claim to fame is other. She is a pretty good jockey, but her other claim to fame is that she played a game as the first female to play uh, in pro basketball. There you go. There you go. Okay. Penny early. She's one for the ages. Yes, she is absolutely. So we were talking about coaches. I mean, a lot of a lot of the AB. Uh, a lot of the Kentucky Colonel's story actually does revolve around the revolving door of coaches. And one of them is a guy who you mentioned before, a guy you know, Gene Rhodes. Not yep. often a coach with with a winning record gets canned, but that's what happened. In fact, I guess he had a pretty rocky relationship with the players. 
Tell us a little more about Gene Rhodes. Well, he, he, he not only had a, a little bit of a rocky relationship with the players because he was pretty, he was pretty old school. Uh, he was disciplined, and that didn't go over too good. But he had a fiery personality. Uh, he was, a, like I said, he had won him a state championship in high school at, at Louisville St. X in 1958. He won the state championship. Then he went on to Western Kentucky, and he was assistant coach there before the Colonels. But uh, as rocky as his relationship was with the uh, with the, the players where his real Rocky relationship was with Mamie Gregory. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, uh, and that, uh, because I think she was, she, uh, in my story, she had told me when we were talking about Gene Rhodes, she said she had an argument with him, and she said, I thought he was going to hit me. So oh. that's, <laughs> that's <laughs> but Gene Rhodes, uh, and he quit, actually quit during a game. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he, he, ran, he... Off the, ran off the floor in a huff and said, you know, I'll see you later, something like that. You yeah, know, he got up, got off the bench <laughs> with a few seconds left in the game, and according <laughs> to what I read in your book, he, he, he walks away from the bench, goes to press row, and shakes the hand of everybody on press row, <laughs> says, thank you for all you've done, and he walks away, and that's it. <laughs> it's crazy. Now, <laughs> yeah, go ahead. You know, this, was the, this was the nature of that league. This was the nature of the ABA. I mean, it was absolutely crazy back then. Uh, I remember a player that came in, I think, for Pittsburgh Condors, Art Heyman, had been National College Player of the Year, played at Duke and everything, was a great player. And, and I was saying, everybody, the NBA, everybody wanted him. Sign with the Pittsburgh Condors, and that guy was flaky as could be. I mean, he'd walk off the court and go, wouldn't sit on the bench, and would go to the dressing room and walk around and shake hands with some of the fans. I mean, this this was the way the league was. It was just crazy in the ABA, and like some people said, it was uh, it was a circus. And then you would have coaches and owners that would pay some of their players to cold cock one of the op- opposing players on a jump ball. <laughs> and you had, you, had your, you had your hit men. You had your guys that were the protectors out there, that were your enforcers. Now, every team probably has ones to this day in the NBA, but you had, a, you had guys in the ABA that were there literally as big as Dan Issel was. You know, he had some guys that were there to sort of watch out and protect him. Wow. It was a different game. Real physical it game. Was a different, Real physical it game. It was, and it was, a, it was a fun game to watch as a young guy as I was back then. I absolutely loved going to the Cardinals games. Okay, next up, Hubie Brown. He became the seventh coach of the team in seven years. This was a successful franchise, and yet it appeared – as if every year they had a new coach. Why? Why was this team unable to retain a coach? Because they weren't able to produce a championship. Winning, winning is the name of the game. And they just weren't able to, and the ownership was such that the, uh, I won't say it was, uh, it, was, it was fickle, maybe it was a little turbulent, but John Y. and Ellie did bring somewhat of a calmness and then when they had Hubie Brown in there, he finally, he finally got him to the promised land. The Colonel's big rivals was Indianapolis. Yep. Yeah. The and Pacers. When, 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 
the Pacers, and when they played games in Indianapolis, man, the Colonels took fans. And when they came down and played those games in Freedom Hall, a lot of the games were full. Freedom Hall with 16,000, 17,000 people for some of those great Pacer games, George McGinnis, uh, some of the great players that they had. Uh, Bob Leonard was their coach. He had been a great player at Indiana, and he was very popular. Uh, but, but Hubie Brown came in there, and he was the guy that could do it. And amazingly, he is still relevant today in pro basketball as a commentator. Yeah, he's a great commentator, was a terrific coach. Actually, in reading your book, I didn't know this, he was actually a baseball guy who wound up coaching basketball. And, of course, then he turns into this phenomenal basketball coach. How did he end up yes. with the Colonels, and what kind of impact did he have on the team? Well, he uh, he had impact. He brought, uh, he brought discipline. Uh, I think he was uh, the best I remember talking. He was a player's coach. Uh, they felt like uh, that he knew the game. Uh, they, I think they, he was one of the coaches that they actually listened to. Uh, not all players listened to him, and they just happened to have, you know, a team, a roster there of guys that wanted to win. And uh, Hubie was able to bring in a guy, uh, a little uh, sidebar to professional basketball, was a guy named Bert Averett who came in for a couple of years. Uh, he had played uh, uh, high school ball in Hopkinsville uh, and went out to the West Coast and uh, led the nation in scoring at, uh, oh, shoot, I'm trying to think of the school there. Uh, it sits on the edge of the Pacific Ocean. Uh, uh, Pepperdine? Anyway, he, yes, played for Pepperdine and led the nation in scoring, and he was a hustler, and he came back, and he fit in just perfect. A lot of times you can have these great stars on a team, Warren, and but you did some way there's a missing piece of the puzzle. Well, Bert Averett was the piece of the puzzle that made it work, and Hubie Brown was able to realize this. He was filling slots. Uh, he had, you know, he had the players, and and he was able to win. And that's what that's all uh, they wanted was somebody to win, and he delivered. And uh, you know, Hubie's one of the great. To this day, he's one of the great basketball minds yeah. ever. And he had a terrific assistant, too, in Stan Albach. Yes, uh, Stan Albach. Uh, uh, my first memory of him was he had been a coach at Illinois State in normal Illinois up there. Uh, but but he had he had the staff. And the, the whole organization was uh, hitting on all cylinders. And you had John Y. and Ellie, and they were – while Ellie was thinking about, man, we're going to win, we're going to keep this team, we're going to keep on, uh, probably behind the scenes, John Wildwood Brown was thinking about, how can I sell this team? How much money can I get for Dan Issel? What can I get now? How can I move on? That's the way John Wy thought. And and amazingly, like we said, coaches were being canned and let go because they couldn't win the big one. Hubie did not win the championship his first year. It was his second year. When finally the Kentucky yep. Colonels won the ABA World Championship, they went 56 and 28. They beat the Memphis Sounds in round one, four games to one, St. Louis, four games to one in round two. And then not only did they win the ABA Championship, they did it by beating their arch nemesis, the Indiana Pacers, in the finals in five games. Finally, 
Just the way it was scripted. You couldn't script it any better than that. <laughs> they were world champions. Just how yeah. good was this team? Tell us a little more about how it all finally came together. The difference that Hubie Brown made and just how big Artis Gilmore was. Well, he, he it was tremendous. He uh, uh, was able to fit the, the puzzle to work, uh, Hubie was. And he was getting the players in the right position. Uh, he gave them a chance to win. Uh, he just—he uh, was a mastermind. Uh, but I, before I forget it, I want to say that you mentioned St. Louis a while ago. Our little sidebar: the play-by-play announcer for St. Louis back then was Bob Costas. Yeah, that was his first ever job. Yeah, it was his first ever job. Uh, and then you had uh, Marty uh, Brenneman, who uh, uh, was a broadcaster and stuff for. Uh, in the ABA. In fact, Marty uh, uh, was around and uh, uh, wrote some stuff for our book that we had. But uh, back to Hubie, he was uh, he was just a master. Not that the other coaches weren't good. I'm going to tell you, Gene Rhodes, Gene Rhodes was a great coach, uh, a great coach. Joe Mullaney, he won everywhere he was at, but he couldn't win the big one. And one of the names that we failed to mention that was there before Hubie Ram was Babe McCarthy. Yes, Babe. The Southern yep. gentleman who had who was there for one year. I mean, he was well-known. He coached at Mississippi State. He had a mastery over Adolph Rupp when Mississippi State started uh, uh, beating Kentucky on a semi-regular basis anyway. So when Babe McCarthy came and he, everybody knew him, they hated Babe McCarthy. But when he became a, a Kentucky Colonel coach, they loved the Babe. And then he got uh, an illness. Uh, he had he developed colon cancer and ultimately died. But he was a great coach there, could not win. But Hubie Brown, he had the touch. Uh, he had the touch with the players. Uh, he had the touch with the fans, and he had the touch with the ownership. I think I have a picture in the book that shows Ellie Brown that they in the shower, yep. all the players fully clothed, I might add, <laughs> into the shower, and they were pouring champagne and everything over. But uh, And then what John Wyatt Brown did, he offered, he had his team, and he offered, a, I don't know, several hundred thousand dollars to the uh, San Francisco Warriors who had won the NBA title for a winner take all playoff game. And they didn't uh, they the, didn't bite. I guess they felt the, they had everything to lose and nothing to gain. That's the only thing I could think of as to why the Warriors would not play the Colonels in in this real true world's championship. Yeah, well, this you're you're right, and I and I agree with your assessment there. This is, uh, uh, but this is what Hubie had put together. Not only did they have really good ownership with Ellie Brown and John Y at the time, it was smooth then, but they had great players and they had a great coach, and uh, that's a good combination. Absolutely. So they're on top of the world. But not only did they not make it back to the finals the next season when they went 46 and 38, certainly respectable. They made it to the playoffs, but they were ousted. This is when Dan Issel was traded away. And ultimately, after that following season, the ABA closed shop and the Colonels were no more. Wow. Again, 
What a bitter it, it was, pill it was to swallow. It was, it was devastating to the, the fans, uh, not just in Louisville, but in Kentucky, because uh, they had picked up a following that people drove from all over the state to see the Colonels play uh, because they had that nucleus at one time of Dan Issel and Louis Dampier and then uh, then artist Gilmore. So much history. And I think uh, John Y began selling off some of his players. And I think then that everybody uh, still has some disdain for John Y because he was apparently – he was in it for the money. Yeah, did he trade Issel because of the money? Did he trade Issel? Uh, uh, was that trade about money? I just can't get a grasp onto why you would trade a guy like Dan Issel. Well, I think he felt like Dan Issel was maybe at the top of his game, and I think it was all about money. Uh, I saw nothing more than that, that uh, he could get top dollar for Dan Issel. And he took advantage of that. That's the way I look at it. Okay, so the league folds. And now we're going to take on a couple of teams and move them, merge, however you want to say it, from the ABA to the NBA. Ultimately, they took on the Nets. They took on the Spurs. They took on the Pacers. And they took on the Nuggets. John Brown walks away with millions of dollars. Three million to be exact is what he right. took. But that was a lot of money. You think, yeah. hey, yeah. that was a lot. It's a oh, lot of money It's 1976. Today, it was it's $3 million. Really a lot of money. And and yeah. I, I think it was the St. Louis team, not only did they get money, they negotiated some sort of a, a uh, in perpetuity, they would get a percentage of gross television revenues from the NBA. So essentially they're still being paid. And I guess that was the, the, that was the brothers out of St. Louis, I believe that put that package together. Right. So, Uh, but the question I have here and, and I'm just not sure I understand. Was it, did Brown look to fold the team and get out and take money? Did the NBA, I guess, did the NBA want the Colonels? I mean, how was it decided that the Colonels were not going to go to the NBA? I, I, I can't believe for a second that the NBA wouldn't want this great team unless they just wanted, they wanted the parts. They wanted, they wanted John Y to pay several million dollars uh, for the franchise. And he said, "I'm not." He said, "I'm not paying that. Uh, I have that in the book. I don't have that in front of me right now. Uh, I don't have that story." But he, they wanted him to pay and any up some more money, and he was not going to do it. He was stubborn, and they they put they put their heads together and said, "Okay, we'll pay you three three million dollars to fold," and that's what he did. He was not going to pay the requested money. Of course, looking back on it, it was a fool decision. But at the time, he was uh, after the bird in hand, uh, and, and he took that money that they offered him. But he had an opportunity, as I understand it, to buy, a, to buy his way into the NBA, but refused to do it. But didn't he ultimately do it anyway with the Buffalo Braves? Well, he, but he was able to do it with his $3 million. So they gave him, uh, so essentially they, he got a team for free. He got a team for a lot more money than what he was going to have to pay to get the Colonels in. Uh, he got a team for a lot less money than what he was going to have to pay 
to go into the NBA with the, the Kentucky Colonels. And then when he was able to trade and finagle with the other owner of part ownership and got into the Boston Celtics, that was the real deal. Yeah, this guy uh, ends up he, he ends up owning the most storied franchise in NBA history. But he was he was hated apparently by Red Arback and he was hated by a lot of the uh, the the Celtic players. Not hated is a strong word. I don't want to use that. Uh, but he was not well liked by Red Arback or the apparently some of the Celtics players and even the fans then. So uh, he got out of the of professional basketball. But he tied down some of his players along the way into nice contracts. He did take care of some of his players that got paid by the Celtics for several years and never played a game for him because he included uh, in that uh, package that he had mm -hmm. uh, the, some of the players' contracts that had played for him for the Colonels. If John Y. Brown were caught walking down the streets of Louisville today, what would the reaction be? Uh, you know what? It would probably be okay. Uh, he came back. He and uh, he and Ellie have been divorced for years, and, and uh, uh, John Y. has gone through several marriages. Uh, but they came to a major book signing that we had in downtown Louisville for the Colonel book. Lloyd and I did, and Dan Issel came in, and Marty Brenneman and Daryl Carey and Louis Dampier and a ton John John Y. Brown uh, and Ellie were all there and the fans liked him. They they you know there's that there's that deep seat thing with that they'll always no nobody nobody hoots and hollers about him. But there's that saying well we if it hadn't been for John Y. we'd have had a, a, an NBA team today in Louisville. Mm -hmm. You know my previous episode I talked about the Cincinnati Royals. And when you consider that region of the country does not have a professional basketball franchise between Louisville, Lexington, Cincinnati, that whole area, I, yeah. it, it, it's really hard to figure out why. And maybe it is because what you said that, you know, Denny Crum or Louisville and Kentucky – you know, Freedom Hall, they feel threatened by the prospect of a, of a professional basketball franchise taking away their fans. Is that is that possible? Well, let me let me say this. You mentioned Denny Crum. The, uh, Denny Crum was all about uh, even a, an arena to share with University of Louisville when he was coaching and the ABA Kentucky Colonels. Denny Crum had a great relationship with with the Colonels, it was when Rick Pitino came in. Ah, okay. Uh, and Tom, Tom Jurich replaced Bill Olson as the AD. It was Jurich and Pitino that have, have gone a long way in trying to keep an NBA franchise. But Denny Crum was, was confident enough to know that an NBA team or an ABA team could coexist with his program. I mean, after all, they like basketball there, and now you're just going to see legacy players from Kentucky and Louisville just take their game to the next level. Well, you can see it now. I think the University of Kentucky has 32 graduates playing in the NBA today. Now think about that, Warren. Wow. 32 former University of Kentucky players are on an NBA roster. Should almost be at least one a team. It's a, it is is unbelievable. You can't watch. I'm, I don't watch a lot of NBA basketball game, but when I do, it seems like there's always two or three of them, you know, playing the game 
course, one of the greatest right now is Anthony Davis. Sure, there, absolutely. absolutely. But the uh, University of Louisville's got a bunch in. But when you stop and think that several of those players could be on a, a Kentucky Carl NBA roster in the city of Louisville, uh, they would be a huge draw. Gary, in the end, how are the Colonels remembered in Kentucky? What's their legacy? Their legacy is is uh, uh, great memories. Uh, I talked to a lot of people uh, who went to the games. They were little boys, and they went there. They were just at a great time in Louisville, fond memories. And I think, uh, I, I, and there's a little bit of a sadness to it all. The the uh, legacy is a sadness to it all. It's like what could have been, what might have been, but what wasn't. You know, and is it? What wasn't was there's not an NBA team in Louisville right now. Right. Hey, Gary, I want to thank you so much for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes. I am thrilled that we were able to spend some time together and talk about a great team, the Kentucky Colonels. Well, thank, thank you for, uh, uh, for the opportunity to talk to you. And if anybody, uh, I keep books here, uh, the Kentucky Colonels, and uh, uh, you might uh, – if you get out there, is it give a phone number or an email address for me or something, Warren, that anybody that wants to get one of these books, I'd be glad to, to wrap it up and send it to them. And they're twenty nine ninety five plus tax. Uh, it's I, not because I wrote it, but it's a great story. And it's a terrific book. It's really, really interesting. A lot of fun stories in it. Thank you, sir. Enjoy talking to you, Warren. I really wonder how the Colonels would have fared in the NBA had John Y. Brown decided to pony up the cash the NBA asked for in order to keep the Colonels intact. I think it would have been really interesting, what, with Gilmore, Dampier, Issel, if he hadn't traded him away, and Hubie Brown as the coach? I think the Colonels could have made quite an impression on the NBA. Heck, remember, the Warriors, who had won the NBA championship just a year before the ABA folded, they didn't even want to play the Colonels. Probably the biggest disappointment outside of folding is the fact that this team only won one ABA championship. They had the talent, they had the coaching, and until Brown decided to break up the team, they certainly had the chemistry. Instead, the Nets, the Pacers, the Nuggets, and the Spurs, they all paid their way into the NBA, and their fans have been rewarded in a multitude of ways. The Spurs, of course, winning several NBA championships, the Nets and the Pacers have made appearances in the finals, and the Nuggets have certainly provided their fans with many thrills over the years. It's a shame that the fans of the Colonels were never given the opportunity to see their team play in the world's premier basketball league the NBA. Next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes, we're going to explore the career of a man who played 18 years of professional football, mostly with the Buffalo Bills and the Washington Redskins. And he was a dominant force on the defensive line and by all rights should have his name enshrined in Canton at the Pro Football Hall of Fame, but is still awaiting the call. We're talking about the great Ron McDowell. And Ron will join us next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes.